time in the Word. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your Son. We thank you once again for your Word, and we thank you that you have saved us based off of your grace and off of your mercy. We ask that as we open up your Word, your Spirit would be moving in our hearts and causing us to see our sin, causing us to look to your Son, uh, that as you work through your Word and as your Spirit works on our heart, that we would repent and we would, by the power of your Spirit, continue to walk in the light and that we would be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Just give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech as I go through this text to explain to your people the truth that is found in your word. I thank you for everyone who is here, and uh, we just ask that this would be a, a time where we would learn from you and we would learn from your word. And may our attitude be that I am not taught unless I am taught by you. We thank you just for this time and this opportunity, and we say all this in the name of your son. Amen. So um, I was thinking uh, back when I was, uh, when Krista and I had announced our engagement, um, I received a lot of unsolicited advice. Uh, Maybe it's just the way I look. Maybe I have this perpetual look on my face of, I don't know what's going on. And so people thought, well, we'll help this guy out. He looks really lost. Uh, what, and, and a lot of the advice I got was good. Um, there was some weird advice, but a lot of it was good. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with providing for Krista and, and protecting Krista and, and just being a good husband. And I thought back to that advice, and I thought it was, it was good, but it was very physical. It, and this is what I mean. It, it had to deal with, like, here and now, Right? provide here. here. Here's what you do. You have this funds, and you give this funds, and you, you work hard to have this, and this is what you're supposed to do to protect. And it was, it was great advice, but it, was, it really didn't deal with my relationship with the Lord and my relationship with her. It, was, it all had to do with money, finances, and physical things, if that makes sense. And as I, as I was looking at this text this morning, I thought, there's more to protecting my family, and there's more to providing for my family than just merely having a paycheck and coming home and making sure that nobody that I don't want comes inside my house, right? There's more here, and there's this spiritual component which is far more important, far more important that I need to be dealing with right now, Uh, or or there's a spiritual component to these truths that we need to look deeper into. So this morning, we're continuing in our thought of how to build a godly home. We're in Proverbs chapter 14. Uh, We're going to focus just in on verses 3 and 4. And verse 3 is really talking about the protection, right, of how do we build a godly home. Well, we got to protect, and we're going to talk about protection here. And then in verse 4, it's going to be talking about provision, and we're going to talk about what that, what that means. Now, as we look at this text in Proverbs 14, 1 through 11, really, that's the main section, right? So, at the beginning part of verse 1, it says, the wise woman builds her house. So, that's the first part of this, this section. And then, the, then notice at the end of verse 11, it says, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And so, as we said, in, as I said a couple weeks ago, 
what does it mean to build a house? What does it mean to build a strong family? I said, well, all of that is explained in verses 2 through 10, and, and it's really kind of end-capped by verses 1 and 11. And so it's almost in the mind of Solomon. He's saying this is what a, a, wise, a wisely built home and family looks like, and these are the characteristics that you will find among those who are righteous, who are building a strong home. Now, the opposite is true as well. So on the one hand, that's what a wise home looks like. But then if you notice also in verse 1 and verse 11, there's this antithesis, right? But the foolish tears it down with his own hands in verse 1. And notice in verse 11, but the house of the wicked will be destroyed. So on the one hand, you have the wise person who is building their house. And here are the characteristics of what a wise house looks like, what a wise family looks like, and then you then have the opposite. What, what happens when somebody's actively trying to destroy a family? What, what kind of characteristics do those people have? And Solomon points those out. Two weeks ago, we were in verses 1 and 2, and in verse 2, we came to what I still think is the absolute bedrock of every single family. It should be the bedrock of your life. Um, it, it should be something that is thought about seriously and should be pr- ever present. And it's this concept of the fear of the Lord, this, this idea of understanding who God is, understanding his character, understanding his nature, understanding who you are in light of his character and nature, taking him seriously having this changed heart where you desire to then live for him. That's what the fear of the Lord is, this, this, this very serious look, this, this, this heartfelt desire to be obedient to him, uh, to fear him, to revere him, to have this awesome respect, uh, to view him as a father and say, I don't want to hurt him and I don't want to hurt that relationship with him. This needs to be the bedrock of every family, needs to be the bedrock of every believer, right? So now we're going to look at some other aspects, some other building blocks. And notice in verse 3, the, the next building block. It's protection, but it's not in, in the way that we would think. Notice what it says. It says in verse 3, In the mouth of the fools is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. So just notice in verse 3, it says, In the mouth of the fools is a rod... You go, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the way that a foolish person talks will come back to spank him, right? That's the idea. We'll come back to judge him. In, in, in our modern day, we, would, we could easily say, well, it will come back to bite him, right? A fool's words will come back to bite him. He, he, he says things in a way that are not right, that are hurtful, that are right off the top of his head, and eventually someone will hear it, someone will be hurt, they will... There will then be this consequence from the thing that he said, and it will come back as ultimate hurt. And just as a human being who has a mouth, this happens to me all the time, right? And I'm sure this happens to you all the time, right? We all say really foolish things, Um, and we say a lot of foolish things to the people that are the closest to us, right? We do this a lot. In fact, this isn't the only place in the Bible that speaks about the danger of the tongue and how easy it is for us to commit this particular sin of 
saying things that are hurtful and, 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 and having a bad kind of speech. In fact, go with me to the book of James quickly. Here, here I think, is a really great description of this. James chapter 3, he, he describes the tongue and, and uh, how we use the tongue, even as believers. Uh, ah, let's just start in verse 1. It says, let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So the the reason that one should not be a teacher is because he has stricter judgment. Well, why? Well, because it's so easy to say a lot of false things, right? It's easy to say a lot of things that are not true, a lot of things that are not true about the character of God, a lot of things that are true, not true about the word of God, right? So somebody who stands up to be a teacher, you've you got to be very careful because, because of the influence of a teacher, there's a stricter judgment. And then he says in verse 2, but, okay, so what if you don't want to become a teacher? Well, <clears throat> be careful because <clears throat> we all stumble in many ways. And there's one area in which we all definitely stumble in what we say. And he says, if you could control what you say, well, then you're, you're perfect, right? You could control everything. Those are verse 3. And he says, but if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships as well. Though they are great, they are driven by strong winds. Still, they are directed by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body. Yet it boasts of great things. <clears throat> Excuse me. So see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. And then notice this next phrase. The very world of iniquity. That's not uh, flattering, by the way. If somebody says, all that is in the world of iniquity is in your mouth. That is not necessarily uh, flattering. But you get the point, right? You get the point. The tongue, the things we say, can be incredibly hor- horrific. And, and we do this almost flippantly, right? I mean, this happens quite a bit. And, and, and notice how our, our tongue is able to, to move us and navigate us through things. And it's the very world of iniquity. It, it itself is full of sin. And then notice what it says next. The tongue is set among the members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird and reptiles and creatures of the sea are tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless, evil, and full of deadly poison. Once again, not a necessarily flattering uh, description of the way that we talk. For with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So think of the, think of the amazing thing that our tongue can do. On the one hand, we can speak incredible truths about God, about his character, about his nature, about his goodness, about his grace. And then as soon as we make a comment like that, we can then say something and curse another human being. This is, the, this is what the tongue can do. This is, how, this is how dangerous the tongue is. It's untamable. But, but, it, but it is such an important part of who we are, is our talking. 
Now, for a believer, we would look at this and we would, we would, we would immediately pray and say, Father, please help me control my tongue to say things that are true according to your word. Help me with the temptation of saying bad things, right? Help me say things that are honoring and glorifying to you. There, there's some sort of mechanism that happens inside of the believer, or at least there should be. For this person in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, when it says, And the fool's mouth is like a rod, the fool has no such filter. And he says whatever comes to his mind at whenever it comes to his mind, and he doesn't care. Those things come back to hurt, and those things come back to bite. And we all have hundreds of examples in our own life and hundreds of examples of watching people that have said the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong attitude, and there were serious ramifications for those things that those people said. Serious ramifications for their job, but even spiritually, right? We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful what we say. But the question is, well, how do we build? Well, notice the, next, notice the next part of the verse. It says, but the lips of the wise protect them. So a wise person says the right thing at the right time with the right attitude. And when a person says the right thing at the right time with the right attitude, there's then this protection, right? Uh, in a sense... Those things are not going to come back to haunt him. Those things are not going to come back to bite him. That, that's, the, that's the practical sense. Now, I, I want to stop here and remind everybody that this is a principle. This is not a promise. Um, we know plenty of people who said the right thing at the right time with the right attitude, and they were persecuted, and people took it the wrong way. We could think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the wisest man who's ever lived, everything he said was the right word at the right time in the right attitude. And what did they do to him? They crucified him, right? We think of the Apostle Paul, a very wise man, who often said the right things at the right time in the right wording. But what ended up happening with him? Persecution. There was fights. And there, so to say that if one just simply does this, then there's never going to be any problems inside of your life and you're always going to be protected if you say the wisest thing at the, white, at the right time. That's not reality. But the principle is sound. This is the principle we should strive to do, right? We should strive to be wise. We should strive to say, we should strive to say the right things at the right time. And the principle is that protects us. And ultimately, it will. If we are saying things that are honoring and glorifying to God and pleasing to God, in the end, the one who is the ultimate judge will judge the things that we say, and he will look at it and go, yeah, those things were good things to say. Now, think about this just in a family context, just in your families as you're dealing with other family members. How many times have you been into a fight with somebody because they said the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong attitude? <laughs> Most of my marriage counseling is dealing with somebody saying the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong attitude, right? It destroys families, absolutely destroys families. I would also say that people who say the wise things, not only in reactions to what other people say, but in just normal conversation, when they say the right things, there is a sense of edification and building up, right? Building up. And remember that the whole goal of wisdom is to be Christ-like. And so if I'm saying the right things, I'm saying the things that are found in God's word that, that are 
promoting and teaching and encouraging one another to live more and more like Jesus Christ. But as we think about it, some of you may say, well, that's all fine and good, Caleb, but what kind of filters can I put in place? What kind of principles and filters can I put in place to help me say the right kind of wise things to my family members? Now, granted, we don't have enough time for me to go through every single filter that will ever happen, but let me just give you a couple filters that will help you speak wisely whenever you're talking to somebody in your family, uh, whenever you're talking to them just in casual conversation or there's an issue that needs to be addressed. How do we talk to somebody in a way that's wise? What does that look like and what are those filters? The first filter that has to be on our mind when we talk or we're getting ready to say something must be the filter of the gospel. It has to be. I am not familiar of any situation that the believer could come across where the gospel is not the central filter that everything should be filtered through. We should always be thinking of the gospel. The gospel should always be on our mind. Now, what is the gospel? Well, go with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. I know that we know this passage, and that's great, and we should know it better To me, this is the definition of the gospel. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel. And this should be on our mind. This should be the first filter that we think about before we say anything. So just notice in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So notice here. Paul, as he's talking about the gospel, he says that it's possible for somebody to believe in vain. Well, the question is, what does that mean? Well, it's not true, authentic belief. Well, then what is true, authentic belief? Well, he kind of describes it here, doesn't it? He, he says, first of all, it was a message preached, so it's a message heard, right? It's heard from God's word. It's a message that is received, right? So this, this intellectual understanding of the truth, I understand what it is, I understand the truth of it, and I intellectually assent to it. But then there's then in which you also stand, right? So that's the, that's a, I'm deciding to believe this, right? So I intellectually understand the truth of the gospel. Then I am, by my will, standing solely on the message of the gospel, right? And then he says, uh, by which you are saved if you hold fast. And then there becomes then this sense of conviction, Right? This is what it means to have saving faith. It's to understand what the gospel is, to decide to believe it, and to say it, this is it and there is nothing else. There is that conviction. Right, This is saving faith. So what is the content then of the gospel? Well, then notice in the next verse, verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance. While I was in Wyoming... Um, I, uh, my dad showed me a, a documentary, and it was talking about how the church is losing the gospel. And, and I think we will all say, well, yeah, that's obvious the church is losing the gospel. But it's almost as if pulpits and pastors and churches are running headlong as fast as they can to jettison the gospel and the basic tenets of the gospel. This is not just the first thing that's important. When, when Paul says this is first importance, this is literally the most significantly important thing in our life. 
the Apostle Paul says this is the most significantly important message that any one of us could ever think about or hear or believe. There is no other message that has the significance and weight that the gospel has. It's a shame that people can go to churches with the name church on it. They can spend years going to those churches and never hear the gospel, the very thing that is the most significant and weighty doctrine, the most important doctrine. So Paul says, this is the most significant one, which I received. So what is this? That Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. That is the most important thing. The most important thing for you and I to understand. Everything gets filtered through this. I am a sinner. I have done a lot of bad things. Jesus died on the cross taking my place, taking my punishment, and died for me. He died in my place, taking my punishment. That is the message. And that's the message that I believe, right? I accept this message by faith. He died on the cross for my sins. He died for my sins. I could not die for my own sins. I couldn't take, I couldn't work my way to heaven. There was no merit, no thing that I could do. It was only through an act of God, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came down, took my place, and died for me. Now notice, he says, this is according to the scriptures. Now, that's an interesting little tag, isn't it? We would all say it happened in reality. That's true. But this is also something that the scriptures talks a lot about. You understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The voice of the Holy Spirit is the scriptures. And this is how the Holy Spirit talks to us, through his word. This is how God communicates, it's through his word. So this is a message that is scriptural. And then notice verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. So notice that he was buried and then on the third day he rose again victorious. This is the gospel message. This is what I'm believing. I'm placing my trust solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm making no provisions for any other method of salvation other than Jesus Christ himself because I cannot have a right relationship with God on my own. I need God to repair that relationship, and he did so through Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, when I'm thinking about talking to somebody, this should be the first filter. It should automatically remind me that I'm not that awesome, right? If Jesus had to come and die on the cross for my sins because I couldn't save myself, that obviously means that I'm gonna, I might say something pretty terrible. So I need to step back and go, remember who I am. I'm a sinner who died. And it's not like I was that awesome that, got, that I was like a first-round pick that God was like, oh, I'm going to pick that guy. No, no merit of my own. Solely off of the mercy and pity of Jesus Christ did he die on the cross for me and save me. Right? Not only that, but then as I'm about ready to say something, the question is, is the thing that I'm about ready to say of this message? Does does it promote this message? If this is the most significant message, the most important message, then the thing that I'm about ready to say should also echo this most important message. If I'm going to say something that's going to have a message and it's not this message, then maybe I shouldn't say the thing I'm about ready to say. 
That's filter number one. I would say that filter number two would be sound doctrine. There's a lot of times where we say a lot of stuff that is not according to what God's word teaches. We need to make sure that the things that are coming out of our mouth are consistent with God's word and consistent accurately with God's word about his his character, his will, about the Holy Spirit, about Christ, about ourselves, about sin, about salvation. All of this, everything that I'm about ready to say should be run through the filter of sound doctrine. And the question then should be, if what I'm about ready to say, if this doesn't push someone towards sound doctrine, is it actually worth me saying? There's another one. (laughs) Uh, Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. I chuckle because it's it's very obvious, and it I, I just... I just realize how often I don't do this. I don't think of this passage when I'm saying something or doing something. And, it, and it's so simple, right? Colossians 3, verse 17. It says, whatever, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next filter, after I think through the gospel, after I think through sound doctrine, the next is, if I say this thing, am I actually doing this in a way that promotes Jesus Christ and honors and glorifies God. Are these things going to cause that person to say amen? Am I going to be able to look back at it and say, no, that was a good thing that glorified God? But let's be honest here. You could be easily duped, right? I could be easily duped. I could say something, and you could say amen, and it could be wrong. And I could think it could be right, but it still be wrong. I could judge myself and say that was right, but it still be wrong. You said amen. You thought it was right, but it still could be wrong. The real question is, is God saying that's true? Is God actually glorified by the thing that I'm saying? That's a probably a bigger question. I could justify any one of my sins as good as anyone else can. And you can justify the things I say pretty easily as well. But the question is, is God glorified by the thing that I'm about ready to say? How do you know? Is it according to his word, right? Is it according to sound doctrine? There would be one other thing, Galatians chapter 5, one other filter. It would be, am I walking by the power of the Spirit, and is it exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Notice... Notice in Galatians 5, 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, if I'm about ready to say something, is the thing I'm about ready to say going to be full of the fruit of the Spirit? Is it going to have all of these things? Is this, is this my heart as I'm about ready to say it? If it is, well, then it's probably worth saying. If it's not, it's probably not worth saying. So, in building a godly home, this isn't just some sort of like, um, like saying a swear word jar that you have in the corner just to kind of stop you from saying bad words. This is, a, this is an understanding that I need to be saying truth, and I need to be saying things that are helpful and edifying to my family that will encourage them 
will advise them and exemplify for them what it means to be godly. That's what we're concerned about. And this is a complete overall of how we think about the words that we say. But this, is, this isn't new. I think we all, all understand that. But that's what it means to protect them. To protect them is to edify them. To protect them is to say things that are true so that they understand the truth. And then they can go out and walk in wisdom. That's what the protection is. Walking in wisdom. We're not talking about having a nice house and a white picket fence and three cars and a dog and kids who play soccer and their pictures are up in their local restaurant. It's not what we're talking about, though those things are great. What we're talking about is a godly family who's protected because people, the family itself, is walking in wisdom. And each, fem- each member of the family has a part to play in this building up of the family. I would say that the ultimate responsibility is the husband and the father. They're the head of the household. As the head of the household, this needs to be something that is always present on your mind of this is what I need to be building into my family, teaching, encouraging, and my leadership should exude this. Wives, as you're coming alongside and helping your husband, you should say this is what we should be striving for. And and as you're teaching the the children and giving advice to your husband, this is the way that you need to be be talking. And and children, as your parents are talking, you need to realize what they're trying to do in your life as they discipline you and that they're bringing you up in the admonition of the Lord, and you, you shouldn't go around saying hurtful things. When you come together with extended family, grandparents, you should be encouraging grandchildren to walk this way, encouraging your children and their spouses to walk this way, and advising them to say things this way, dealing with uncles, aunts, nephews, all those others. All, everyone contributes to a family as it's being built, and make sure that as far as it depends on you, you are the one that is saying things that are wise, that you are saying things that are according to the gospel, sound doctrine. You are saying things that are honoring God. You are saying things that are from the product of the Holy Spirit, right? Make sure that you're the one that's encouraging to live for the Lord. That's protection. Now, let's go to this next one in verse 4 of Proverbs 14, verse 4. Got to be honest with you, this one is a tough one for me. Um, spent a lot of time thinking about this particular proverb, and it is, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty tough. And I will say this, the commentators have not been very helpful in, here, in, 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 in understanding this, um, and I think they struggle with it as well. And one of the ways that you can tell when a commentator is struggling with a particular passage, they just reword the passage and say, there it is. If they do that, that means they don't understand what's going on, but they have to say something on that verse. So just reword it and say, that's the way it is, and hope that everybody goes, oh, yeah, no, that's right. So notice what verse 4 is. It says, where no oxen are, the manger, the the, the feeding trough, the barn itself, is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Now, I think on just a metaphor level, I think we all understand this, right? If there's no cow in the barn, there's no cow messes in the barn. And if there is a cow in the barn, then there's evidence of that cow all around. We also understand that if you have a, a, an animal, a beast of burden, and if you have him plowing your field and you're walking behind him with a, 
with a plow, that is far superior than you pushing the plow yourself. You can get a lot more done with an ox than you can by yourself. We all understand that. We all understand that there's more revenue that comes by the strength of an ox than just merely one guy working by himself. And at, at, the, at the, the tippy-top level of what Solomon's getting at, it's essentially this. Progress comes through hard work, right? We would say, you got to get your hands dirty, right? That, that's really at the center of what Solomon is trying to say here. But there's another nuance, and, and it's that, verse, that first part of verse 4, which is, which is kind of confusing, because there's... Because it says, where there's no oxen, the manger is clean. That's an interesting way of saying it. That's kind of obvious. So why say something so obvious? Some people have said, well, this means that um, the person who doesn't have an ox, they're lazy. So they don't go out and buy an ox. So therefore, because there's no work being done, their barn's clean. No doubt that's obvious. But I'm not 100% sure that's really what Solomon's saying. Some said, well, what's happened is... There's a guy, and he's like weighing, and he says, if I do the work myself, I can make more money without the added responsibility. And, and really what Solomon's saying is, actually, no, you, it's good to add on this extra responsibility because you will be able to, to grow. You'll be able to have far more uh, produce. You shouldn't be a miser, essentially. Yeah, maybe, but I don't think that's necessarily what Solomon's saying. And the reason I say that is because of that little last phrase, the manger is clean. Why, why talk about a clean manger if what you're talking about is miserliness or somebody being lazy? That, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. What seems to be what Solomon is talking about, from my point of view, is Solomon is saying there is someone who has decided to have a clean manger, Therefore, they decided not to have an oxen so that when people walk by, they look, look, it is perfect. Their barn is perfect. But that's not really a good thing. It's not a good thing to have that, to merely just have a clean barn for the sake of the appearance of a clean barn. Rather, the one who's really getting something done, the the one that's really beneficial, is the one who gets their hands dirty and works. I think that's really what's at the heart of this. Obviously, there might be some laziness involved. Obviously, there might be some miserliness involved. But I think really what Solomon's getting at is this idea that there is, that the appearance of being clean should not be the end goal. The end goal is to actually do the work, to get your hands dirty. So think about this in a family dynamic. We all know families that appear on the outside clean and perfect. Who cares? That doesn't matter. The families that actually are living for the Lord are the ones that are actually doing the work, spending time with one another, doing the things that families are supposed to be doing, spending time in God's word. Think about this spiritually. I could look spiritual, but does that mean that I am spiritual? In Bible college, we always used to joke about the guy who would never read his Bible but would always dip his Bible in the bath water so that when it would dry, it would look like all the pages were soaked with dirt and wrinkled from just hours of use, but the guy never spent any time in the Word. <clears throat> what does that get you? What does that get you to look that way? It doesn't. 
one does not simply just wake up spiritual, right? It requires hard work. And not just hard work, but hard, dirty, gritty work, right? I find it interesting when the Apostle Paul talks about himself. He never portrays himself as being the perfect, ideal person. In, In fact, he always portrays himself as being a terrible sinner saved by God's grace. Someone, who, someone who's striving hard to live for the Lord. Paul never offers up great little secrets of, if you just do this, everything's going to be great. In fact, the Apostle Paul says the opposite. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? He tells, he tells us constantly that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. He talks about his agony as he's working with people, as he's striving, and as he's, as, as he's teaching. And even when he's talking about his own flesh, he's looking at himself and he goes, I don't even understand, nor do I agree with the things that I'm doing. Who can save me, what wretched man that I am? And then he introduces the fact that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that he can have victory over sin. So even the Apostle Paul doesn't give himself as this perfectly clean person, but it requires a lot of work. I think here there's a great overlap for us. We shouldn't be fake. We shouldn't pretend to have a clean barn. But we should do the work that's required of us to spend time in God's word, to spend time with Jesus, to spend time doing that work that's necessary for us to be more like Christ. Now, granted, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing a lot of stuff, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that we should avoid yielding to the Spirit. But in conjunction with yielding with the Spirit, as the Spirit's working on us and Christ is working on us, there is still that activity that you and I need to do, and we need to do that with much vigor. There is nothing wrong with us as believers saying to each other, yeah, today was a very difficult day in the flesh. Now, it's not wise to expose every single struggle that you've had in the flesh. I wouldn't advise that. But there is nothing wrong with amongst church family members to say, yeah, today was a tough day in the flesh, wasn't it? Really struggled. I'm not perfect. But I'm thankful that there's victory in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Think about this in a family. You can have perfect Instagram pictures of your family as you're going out to eat and everybody's smiling and looking good, but we all know that that snapshot is only a split second in the history of the world. And sometimes when we've seen those families on Instagram, we also saw them when they entered the restaurant, while they were eating, and when they left, and those families were in complete disarray. So it requires work. It requires spiritual work. It requires us to roll up our sleeves and do the things that the Lord is asking us to do. And so I really put this really on the feet of the fathers, and on the men, and on the husbands. We as husbands and as men need to make sure that we ourselves are putting in the hard work, that we ourselves are spending time in God's word, that we're spending time in prayer, that we're spending time repenting of our sins and confessing our sins. And then as we then go and talk to the rest of our family, that we speak in a way that's honoring and glorifying to Christ, We speak in a way that encourages people to live for the Lord. And then as we as fathers and husbands and men inside of families, that we we expose some of our struggles, but we are willing to do the hard work, and we're willing to do the hard work with the rest of the people in our family. 
That's our job as, as husbands. The buck stops with us. The responsibility is with us. That's the job as fathers. It ends with us. Men in the family, that's our job. That's our responsibility to step up and do the hard work that's required of us. To be men of character, to be men that are found in Christ, to be men who are spending time in God's word and doing that difficult work. And in that sense, right, so if we go back to verse 4, he says there's much revenue. That is how husbands actually provide for their families. It's amazing to me, um, as a young man, when I was in, I I went to Mexico several times on missions trips. And the first time was just so amazing to me on the wealth disparity and how much I had in Houston, Texas, and how little they had down there. The other thing that was absolutely mind-boggling was the joy of the saints down there compared to the joys of the saints in the United States. So they had less, but they seemed to be more joyful. They seemed to be a little bit more authentic. And as I looked at the men, and I looked at the families, they were strong, tight-knit families, and they desired to live for the Lord. And it it was something that was just a little bit different than what I saw in in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that they're perfect, and we're not perfect. They, They had sin just like the rest of us. But it seemed like in the United States, we were more concerned about how much money was brought home, and that was actually the definition of provision. Whereas in Mexico, it seemed like, am I actually helping the person in their spiritual life and giving them, as the father, I'm acting as the resource for spiritual life for my family. That's what they were providing, and they seemed happier. They seemed more godly. I, I, think, I think that's the type of thing that we as husbands and, and men <clears throat> need, to, need to be striving for. And wives, um, I, I, know, I know that sometimes... The struggle is how do, I, how do I be supportive of my husband? And if the husband is saying we need to be more godly, you need to be in 100% agreement with that. And if that means that you don't get as big of a paycheck, who cares? It is far better to be godly and poor than to be ungodly and rich. Children, understand this. Sometimes parents make decisions because they want you to be godly. They want you to be holy, not because they want you to be happy. And you need to understand that there are, be- there are more important things to life than things. And that sometimes living for Jesus is, is better, is far better than having things. So, this morning as we conclude, let us, as we go into our families and as we talk with our families and as we have the different relationships in the family, may we seek to speak wise words to encourage them to live wisely, which will ultimately then protect them and let us provide for them spiritually, seeking for them to be spiritual and, 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 and love the Lord. May the Lord help us do all that, that he's said for us to do and may we spend much time with him and may we love the Savior supremely. Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for this text and the truths that are found in your word. We just ask that as we go out as as people inside of families, that you would help us be the right kind of family member and that we would offer up a life of wisdom that is honoring and glorifying to you. 
we thank you so very much for just this opportunity that we had to be in your word, this opportunity that we've had to just spend time thinking about these things. And we just ask uh, that you would help us and you would lead us and you would guide us for your honor and for your glory. Amen.